all right, now that he's he's getting up, let's talk about him behind his back. No. <laughs> uh, we are happy, again, to have John with us for this episode of the Dungeon Pastors. Uh, again, we are talking about some interesting things today. We're talking about folklore. We're talking about pop culture. And uh, John Price is the director of New, is the editor, I'm sorry, the editor of New Directions in Folklore. And he's here with us. And so we're going to continue some of this discussion. Uh, so, uh, Stephen, uh, what is the next question up for John on this, this uh, folklore conversation? Uh, we've got modern tradition bearers as an expression. On. So who would you say are the, the modern tradition bearers uh, that, that we follow? Everyone. <laughs> okay. Everyone has traditions. Everyone bears traditions. Um, uh, in terms of like pop culture, we're going to have a situation where you do have um, – Formal, how do I say this? You do have formal ways of producing traditions, right? But then the people will always change it, right? Um, individuals will always take ownership and they'll always make it their own, right? Um, it's like, like um, Disney and Frozen 1 and how everybody became convinced that uh, Elsa's parents were Tarzan's parents because the ship <laughs> crashed and Perfect. then it washed up on the shore. And yeah. then, you know, obviously, no, I won't say that. That'll spoil Frozen 2 and not everybody will have seen it yet. So. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, no, fan theories are always going to be it. Um, whenever you have a situation where you have a kind of zeitgeist around an idea, that will always be informal, always. Even if it becomes, especially if it becomes regurgitated in formal ways, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like retcons or something, right? Um uh, you know, I, my dissertation was on the NFL, right? So you have a situation where the NFL is not informal in any way. It is a formal uh, process. It is a formal production. You know, these are paid professionals doing paid professional things, right? But the fans will produce ways of celebrating that. The fans will produce ways of engaging with it, right? The Super Bowl is not informal, but there are a billion informal things about the Super Bowl, right? There are ways, you know, there are correct and incorrect foods, right? If you show up to a Super Bowl party wearing a tuxedo and drinking wine, culture tells you that's wrong, <laughs> right? Right? And, yeah, you see the, yeah. and, and you'll have that belief reflected back to you in like sitcoms and commercials and things like that, right? Where you'll have companies embracing uh, uh, informal knowledge as in, in a way to monetize it effectively, right? Um, you're going to eat wings. You're going to have pizza. You're going to have beer, right? Beer companies know this, so they market it, right? They're taking the pop lore and making it formal, right? So you'll have this whole situation just in terms of fandom. You can have... Um, uh, you know, every single sports team in history has had a fan base, right? The ways in which you identify yourselves might be formal, right? I'm going to buy a officially licensed uh, jersey, 
right? Or a jacket or something. Officially licensed. There's nothing informal about it, right? It's made, it's produced, it's sold. I bought it with money, right? Right. Perfect. Right. But the way you display it, the way you wear it, the meaning it has for you is the informal part, right? They can't tell you the meaning, right? They can sell you the good. They can't sell you your belief, right? So if that jersey number has special meaning to you, right? I'm a I'm a Penn State fan, right? I got a PhD at Penn State, right? Um, the number 11 is a very powerful number for Penn State football, right? Very, it's, it's a linebackers will, the best linebacker on the team wears number 11, basically. And if they give you number 11 when you're like a sophomore, it means they think you're going to be the best linebacker on the team, right? It's a very powerful thing, right? So when I wear a jersey that has the number 11 on it, I'm not just saying I'm a Penn State fan. I'm saying I have so much informal knowledge about what this number means and what this means to me. Does mm. that make sense? Yeah. 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 It's a group identifier, but it's also saying that you are in the group deep. Yes. Yeah. You, you know, almost a form of gnosis or secret knowledge. If you're not a part of that group, you don't have yeah. that secret knowledge. Yeah. One of the things you made me think about here, uh, I know you're not as familiar with the Dungeons and Dragons, but in Dungeons and Dragons, we have a variety of game worlds. You have uh, things called the World of Greyhawk, the Forgotten Realms, and and these are worlds that are created much like Tolkien's Middle Earth, where people where characters can go and play. And so you'll put your character, say, in Tolkien's Middle Earth, or in the World of Greyhawk, or in the World of Forgotten Realms. And these worlds have these timelines of events that happened. But once your characters enter in to that world, that whole world changes. And the timelines go askew, and you can change and do things. So you have that formal setting, that formal canon, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But now the individual gaming group is changing the canon of that world as they interact it and making their own stories and their own narratives, which then builds that gaming group closer together because they feel like they're changing and impacting a, it may be a fantasy world, but they feel like they're changing and impacting it. And so then they begin to share those stories and other people may or may not adopt those stories or may react and say, oh, wow, that's cool. You went that direction. Here's the cool way we went in our direction when we ran a similar campaign. So I can see yeah, how this folklore yeah. interacts with, with things like Dungeons and Dragons. Mm. Yeah, and, and you're always going to be talking about community in some respect, right? The community could be two people. Uh, there's an argument. It could be one person. But let's go with two people, right? Um or it could be 2 million people, right? You're always going to need a way of including and excluding people from those communities, right? We may not like it. We may, you know, you may pick malicious ways of doing it, but you're always going to have that need for inclusion, exclusion, right? And um, in the 1940s, a guy came up with the idea of uh, the function of folklore, right? And this is very widely uh, cited and it's, you know, you learn it in your first folklore class, right? It's called the four functions of folklore, right? And they might seem kind of common sense when I say them out loud, but 
we'll, we'll kind of piece it all together, okay? So the first function is your really obvious escapism, entertainment, right? If you tell a story, if you have a tradition, you have to like it, right? If nobody likes it, no one's going to tell that story ever again right? So it has to be an interesting story. It has to be uh, a story that, that grabs your attention, right? That, that, that resonates with you, right? Um, it could be, uh, you know, it could be a narrative. It could be a physical uh, a tradition, whatever the tradition is, right? Um, the second function is going to be education, right? So it serves a pedagogical, oh my God, pedagogical, it serves an educational purpose, right? <laughs> right, of teaching you what is acceptable, what is not acceptable within the community, right? It's going to, you're using a lore, a piece of lore, a story, a, a tradition, or whatever, of transmitting your values, right? So think of children's stories, right? There are always morals to all of these children's stories that we look at, right? And now the good example of like the Grimm's fairy tales, right? Well, the Grimm's fairy tales are a lot different in a lot of cases from what Disney gave us. Heck yeah. But it doesn't matter because uh, uh, dynamic and conservative tells us that if you change the story to fit your culture, it's still the same story. All you're doing is changing it to fit your culture. And then we can take a look at why you changed it. What does that say about your culture? Right? So in a lot of cases, Disney made Grimm's fairy tales uh, safer. They made them happier, right? Uh, children didn't get eaten alive anymore, right? There was a happy ending to a lot of these, right? Now, what does that say about America in the 1930s that Disney had to go ahead and do that, right? That's the kind of uh, uh, conversation you're going to have there, right? So the third function is going to be validation, right? We do this thing because it tells us who we are. If you don't do this thing, you are not who we are, right? So it's going to be, um, uh, you're going to validate your rituals, right? So, so if you have a ritual, right, your community has a ritual, your community has a tradition, your community makes things, right? Why? Why do you do that, right? Well, the story tells you why. The story around that thing the act of that thing will tell you why you're doing it. Like, we, we can get into specific examples, but that's the third one, validation, right? The fourth function is going to be social control. Seems pretty obvious, right? Um, if you have a legend about a wolf living in the woods and if children go in there, they get eaten by the wolf, that's a form of social control. Pretty obvious, right? Um, just take that to the next step. If you have a, a fan community, that has a tradition of wearing black, right? You better show up wearing black because if you're not, you're not part of the community, right? So very kind of basic when you think about it, but you put them all together, right? And the whole overarching theme here, the function of folklore is going to be stabilization. You want to stabilize culture. Culture can vary. Culture can change. Culture can update. Culture cannot be overhauled right? It's a very conservative process, small c conservative process where you want things to remain the same for as long as possible, right? You can have variation within those same things, you know, maybe, um, you know, uh, maybe the wolf doesn't eat the kid anymore. The wolf 
tells him he's a bad kid or something, right? But the story is going to stay, stay the same because you want to stabilize. You want to make sure that the culture I lived is the same culture that my kids are going to live, is the same culture that my grandparents lived, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Okay. Right. So if we take this, right. So just let me real quick. Right. So if we take this to the pop culture version, pop culture is now our culture, right? So pop culture, it has, it's given itself a sort of agency, right? It's made itself an actor in this process, right? So now we have pop culture telling you that you have to embrace pop culture. Okay. If you don't celebrate, if you, if, if you're not a football fan, you're still going to watch the Super Bowl. Why? TV commercials, halftime show, food, hanging out with friends, whatever the case may be, right? The football part is only one part of the Super Bowl, right? So it's become a tradition. It's become a holiday, basically a vernacular holiday, right? And everyone in the country, and now including uh, a lot of the globe, right, are celebrating this one event, you can celebrate it a billion different ways, but you're still going to celebrate it. Pop culture has given itself that kind of um, agency and power. And I think that's really interesting. Um, if we're looking at nerds and nerd culture, I mean, the fact that every single fandom is tearing itself apart right now, I think speaks, you know, there's a lot of power. There's a lot of passion. There's a lot of energy going on. What is the correct way of doing this thing? And that's what folklore is supposed to tell you. But if you have a situation in pop culture where one group doesn't recognize the pop war of another group, that's going to get into trouble. In, in my, I think so. Anyway. Yeah. Oh, I'm, 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 wow. My, my mic just suddenly went, did I go loud on you guys there? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what happened. I, I think I picked up an outside noise there or something. Uh, I've, I've noticed that. Yeah. I mean, uh, right now fandoms are tearing themselves apart. And one of the things I've noticed too, with the rise of things like the Marvel cinematic universe and things of that nature, that has really kind of surprised me has been how people react when someone says, Oh, I've never seen one of those movies. It's like, what, how are you disconnected from the world? Right. I mean, you've never seen any of the Marvel cinematic movies. You've never seen any of the Spider-Man movies. You haven't seen any of this and they're no, no, I haven't. And that, and, and people look at them like, where have you been? Who are you? What's wrong with you? And, uh, so yeah, yeah, it, it very much, uh, when you're not a part of that story, but uh, well, think of it this way. How do we judge a successful movie? Now we don't say, you know, if, if you want to know if a movie is successful, you look at the box office, right? What's the box office tells you how many people went to see it and how much money do they spend? Right? No one asks if it's a good movie. Right. No one says, Hey, I really like that plot twist. No, they say, Oh, it made $4 billion in China. Therefore it's a good movie. You know what I mean? It's that sort of vernacular twisting that you would look at and say, okay, this means this, this, there's, there's something going on here, right? This shift, right? You don't give it four stars anymore. You say it made $4 million, right? There's a huge kind of drastic shift there, right? You're still rating a movie. You're still seeing a movie but the way you're doing it has changed a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. No matter how much it makes, it doesn't necessarily, no matter how much money it makes, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good movie. No. no. Just and I remember in music, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh no, go ahead. 
You go ahead. I was just going to say, I remember, uh, you know, uh, I had a, a conversation in high school one time where uh, this was back when boy bands were uh, all popular. And, you know, a guy on the football team was saying about how, you know, well, they're popular because they make a lot of money and therefore they're good. And I'm a tool fan. And I was like, no, that's, that's the stupidest way you ever judge art, right? You're judging an artistic performance by how much money it makes. And, you know, he was right in a very real sense where, yeah, if you make a lot of money, people will do that thing and continue to keep doing it. Right. As we see with all these other, you know, billion, um, uh, comic book movies, right? If one of them is successful, all of them are all of a sudden going to have pop songs in them, you know, because Guardians was pretty good, you know? Um, so it's this idea where culture and especially pop culture now feeds itself, right? And it's done through vernacular ways. It's done through formal ways. It's done through performative ways. Um, and I just think that's really interesting. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it is really interesting. Definitely is. Wow. Wow. I think we have really covered a broad spectrum here today, guys. And uh, I just want to thank John for joining us as we have talked about folklore, pop lore, uh, so many other things I wanted to talk about, but we are just running out of time here. Uh, <laughs> but the last thing I, I want to mention is, is John mentioned this in his paper and this is something um i just want you to touch on briefly if you can and that's how narratives create group identities uh some positive ways you know we can think of the negative ways in which narratives create group identity but what are some positive ways we can use narratives to create group identities among gamers among geeks in the life of the church or in the life of any community in which we're involved in? What would be some positive ways you could think of, John? Uh, that's a great question. Um, positive ways in which narratives create group identity, as we're talking about, right? Right. Um, celebration, you know, celebration of positive events, right? So instead of, uh, like, you know, talking about the divisiveness that we've been talking about, you know, Oh my God, did you see that great play? We all saw that play together. Oh, you weren't there? Oh, well, we experienced something that you didn't, right? And I'm going to tell you about it and how great it was. And now we have, you know, cell phones. We can, you know, show, you know, oh, check it out. It's already on Twitter, you know. Um, but I think really the celebration of it all is, is a kind of important way which narratives drive and help solidify culture where you have a community based around uh, uh, positive experiences, right? And I don't mean positive in a kind of, you know, Disney kind of way. I mean, positive in a kind of, it's, it's a, an uplifting sort of um, uh, experience or a transformative experience, right? We'll have, you know, rituals are a very large part and we haven't really talked about rituals. Um, and I'll just do it real briefly here. Um, there's basically three phases to rituals, right? There's the introduction, which is the separation from culture. Then there's the liminal phase where the rules don't exist anymore, right? And then there's the reintroduction into culture as a different thing, different person, right? So think of like a coming of age ritual, right? You start as a child, then in your liminal stage, there are no rules, right? Is, 
right is left, up is down, right? You can get away with things that you can't normally get away with, right? And then at some point you go back into society as an adult and you have the rules are back, right? And you can say, oh, you know, and you can approach that from a few different ways where you're celebrating that ritual as a way to say, um, this is part of who we are that you get to go through this ritual or, or this is part of who we are where you've gone through this crucible and now all of a sudden uh, some sort of transformative experiences has made you a man or made you a woman or what have you, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I, that's very similar to the way some churches do confirmation. Right. Uh, the way uh, uh, Jewish culture does bar mitzvahs or at least used to, you know, uh, when you make it, um, Richard Rohr is a Roman Catholic theologian who talks about the need for ritual to, uh, especially for men. He, he, he specifically talks about this for men, about how men need a coming of age ritual to get to, because we don't really have those anymore in our culture for men. Uh, he said, Rohr, this is Richard Rohr. Please don't, don't send me any hate mail. But, but the reason Richard Rohr talks about this way is his women biologically have a coming of age tale. Uh, biologically women hit that point. Uh, whereas, you know, uh, and, but men don't have those coming of age rituals. Uh, I agree with Roar to a point, but I, I think it's important for everyone to have a coming of age ritual that that's not based on biology. Uh, that's mm -hmm. based on, you know, cultural norms and, and cultural things. So it's great. Now you've got me thinking, what would be a coming-of-age ritual for uh, uh, the children of gamers? Do we give them a set of dice? Give them their own personalized D20? <laughs> Moving or? from games that are 8 plus to well, games that are 14 plus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, uh, excuse me if I'm wrong, but you already have a language for it. You have noobs. Yeah. Right? No, that's good. Yeah. And, all, you know, and whenever, whenever that transition may be whatever you guys decide that transition may be you stop being a noob and you get reintegrated into the community as a i don't know good player i don't know what <laughs> <laughs> uh well we have our share of gatekeepers in the gaming community too uh, on all sides it, it, it's a yeah. horrible experience and but but yeah i mean uh you know for i i think those coming of age rituals are important it's an identity uh, a time to transition to adulthood, a time to, to actually, you got to go out and pay the bill so you can buy more games. So there's a, uh, real quick, uh, there's a pretty famous folklore article, you know, famous within our group, right? Um, it's called Into the End Zone, right? And it's written in, uh, I believe, 1972 by Alan Dundee. Um, he's a little notable on the pop scale, but um, it's all about football, youth football, and how youth football has become the only or not the only but one of the main coming of age rituals in american culture because we've intentionally gotten rid of a lot of them right your coming of age now is whether you have a job or not right which is a whole different mm. can of worms right but youth football is explicitly and he looks at the vernacular of it all he looks at the language right where you're driving into the end zone right um you're you're physically you know you're wearing spandex and you're crashing yourself into other men or other boys, right? It's all about the vernacular um, rhetoric of kind of conquering masculinity, right? Conquering the feminine side, you know, 
you know, uh, they'll derogatorily call people, you know, feminine names, right? Um, it's also talking about conquering the homosexual uh, rhetoric at the same time, feminine, homosexual, and all the other sort of taboo notions that kind of permeate uh, American culture, at least at the time, it was written in the 70s. Um, and he was saying that football, you know, American football has become that kind of coming of age thing for that group of people where you emerge from football and you've either won or you've lost, you've conquered or you haven't conquered, right? You're a champion or you're not a champion, right? And so it's a matter of kind of going through that process. It's not a perfect analogy uh, and there are some problems with it, but, but I think if you're talking about pop culture versions of rituals, that's how you would kind of have to approach it where, where it's not going to be universal. It's going to be for a specific community. So if we're talking about gamers, again, at what point do you stop being a noob and at what point and how does that transition actually happen? That sort of thing might be something to look at. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, you've really made me think about insider and outsider language. And, and Stephen, you'll like this, is uh, how do you embrace converts to the community? For example, you know, my children uh, aren't noobs. They may be younger than a lot of geeks, but my children have grown up with this all their lives. Uh, this, this geekiness, whether it's comic books, whether it's role-playing games, whether it's board games, video games, all of these are things they've experienced all their life. And then, so what happens when someone converts to it, they've never experienced that, which we still meet people who haven't. I, I mean, there's a lot of people at, at the church I pastor. <laughs> you haven't uh, been initiated yet. And so how do we bring people in? How do we uh, let them have their own coming of age tale into that community in a positive way? And as a pastor, how do we bring people into the church? How do we confirm them into the life of the church where they feel they're a part of that community and they have that noob washed off of them? Because noob is a really negative term. I mean, my son uses it uh, when he's playing a game. Oh, look at all these noobs who are here on Roblox. And he get, you know, and it's a very negative term. He's gotten mad when someone sent him an instant message. Oh, you're a noob. And he's like, I am not a noob. Don't call me a noob, you know? And so it becomes a negative term. I guess the key word I'm thinking about is these things need to be intentional. We need to be intentional about bringing people in and letting them know they're accepted into the community. Yeah. And, and, and that's going, and, and from the folklorist aspect, that's going to look different for each community. It won't look the same, yeah. but the function and the purpose of it is the same. Yes, exactly, cool. exactly. Cool. That's exactly it. Yeah, and, and that's where I see the going back to your in the end zone thing is where I see that particular mentality of you come out at the end of having either lost or won. That's massively damaging as a way for actually bringing people into a community or as coming of age. You know, especially as coming of age, what do those who haven't succeeded do with themselves after putting all of them? That, yeah, there, there needs to be there needs to be ways for those who aren't just the champions to be celebrated. And I think it can get taken too far when you you know you're giving out diplomas for I don't know. Well done, you, you've been able to pick your nose steadily for a week or, or whatever. That, that's that's silly. But you know, it's it's you, you have to find something for each person. I, in that I, I, I know where you're going with that, Stephen. You didn't want to say this, but we, 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 
we have this negative term participation trophy, right? Yeah. You know, and, and, and we talk about, Oh, all these kids, they just want their participation trophies. Well, my first response has always been who paid for that trophy, mom, dad, you know, you can't complain about the kid, but back in the seventies, I got a participation trophy when I played Dixie league baseball. <laughs> and I didn't see that as any great accomplishment on my part. It was an acknowledgement that I was a part of that community because I sucked at baseball. <laughs> I was horrible. I did not realize that right field was the position you put everybody in who was horrible. I played <laughs> right field consistently. I thought, oh man, they got me in right field. I must be doing something right. No, we put you there because nobody hits the ball there. <laughs> and they would back me all the way up to the fence so that the first and second baseman could catch the balls. But my point being is that, you know, an acknowledgement of being, I, I got that trophy. I didn't think, oh, I'm a great baseball player. I thought, oh, I'm a part of this community. And mm -hmm. then they gave me a baseball that the coaches signed and all the other kids signed. That was an acknowledgement for that one summer in the 1970s, what I took part in. Yeah. And so when people are, and, and so I agree with you, that whole end zone idea that there will be winners and losers. My brother played football, had his knee taken out at the age of 14, could never play football again. Uh, and he was a great football player. But that acknowledgement of being part of that community, having been a part of it, is, is I think, essential. And uh, that that's, comes down to the key of, of, of that positivity, that positive yeah. acceptance. I, I mean, the, the, the acknowledgement of being part of the community should be the important part. Bingo. Not, not whether you've won or lost, but the fact that you were there. Um, but not in a way that derides those who've, one as well it's very complicated <laughs> yeah and there was a lot i mean there's a lot of you know side conversation we could have about that specific article but yeah. I, I i think from my perspective at least the big important part here is that the ways people used to have these sort of conversations were very sort of insular my community is my town or my community is my church, or my community is, you know, whatever, right? Now we live in a situation where pop culture is the community, and mm. we can have sub-communities from there, right? So pop culture is telling us right and wrong. Pop culture is telling us um, what's trendy, what's not trendy. Um, if you know certain specific artists, you're cool. If you don't, you're not cool, that sort of thing. So I think... Um, listening to you guys talk about the the needs for these sort of um, community building things, I think it's important to recognize that you have an overarching competitor in pop mm -hmm. culture, right? And so it's not just as simple as me. Again, this is kind of a terrible stereotype, but, you know, I'm thinking of like a prairie town with, you know, Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman and they got one church in town, right? Yeah. You're not dealing with that situation and you haven't been for a long time, yeah. not you personally, but, you know. Um, so. Now you have all these competing things. And even from what I was talking about, which is the 20th century, now you have all different layers of competing things. Now you have that same sort of thing, but fractured into a billion different channels, into a billion different messages, a billion different sources of information. You can have, you know, you could have someone sitting, uh, having a conversation with you who's also taking in information from their phone at the same time. That's an entirely new sort of dynamic to, to deal with in terms of community building. 
and in terms of finding a sort of central idea of what makes us us, right? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, um, and we we've very firmly moved away from geographical communities now, and it's now uh, so. In the Church of England, we have the parish system, and the parish system works for some of the things that it was set up to work for, to make sure that the vicar doesn't have to do the entirety of a massive town, and it says, does this section of the funerals, the weddings, the baptisms, that works, and being pastorally responsible for them. But what it doesn't factor in is people will now travel to the church that fits them. So they might not go to their parish anymore, they'll go to the church in, uh, I've, I've got one friend who travels two or three towns from where she lives to go and go to a church that fits her style. And the churches don't take that into consideration yet. They, they see it as a negative thing when actually it's the potential positive thing. Community's changing. Community isn't bound by this small little village that you're in anymore. It's something much bigger I mean, we're in community now. I'm sat here in Blackpool. Derek's sat, you know, miles and miles and miles away. But we're in community together, you know. Um, things are changing fundamentally, I think. And the, the folklore will, you know, change alongside that as well. There's a book, uh, there's a book by a folklorist named Robert Glenn Howard that I think... Uh, you guys might like, and I'll, I'll send you the information called uh, Digital Jesus. And it's all about how, um, uh, it's not very irreverent or anything, don't worry. Um, but it's all, it's all about how irreverent are, doesn't bother us. <laughs> that's fine. Just, you know, just check in, you know, but it's all about um, how people establish what he calls virtual ecclesia, where you're creating a church community entirely online, entirely on, and the ways in which it manifests and the ways in which you perform traditions and stuff without ever physically meeting each other. Um, I'll send you guys that information. It's a pretty that, good, that would be great because Stephen and I, that's how, how we know each other. We're a part of some communities like that. Uh, Stephen and I have never been in the same physical room at the same time. And, uh, but we have met through various geeky, ministries and ministers over the years uh, through various connections I've made, through connections he's made. Of course, they often refer to me as the old man uh, because <laughs> I've been doing this for a while. And so they all kind of get to know me and I get to know them. But yeah, it is a virtual ecclesia in, in what we do. Uh, I th you have really given us a lot to think on. Uh, one of yeah. the things I'm taking away from this is is something uh, when I was doing some studies that uh, touched heavily on postmodernism, one of the things I, I, I wonder how we as humans will change because uh, we don't have an overarching meta narrative for most of our culture. And, and that's very difficult because when you talk about pop culture as this huge umbrella and you say pop culture is everything, you know, that, that kind of blows my mind a little bit. Cause when I, th I've thought apart, pop culture. I've thought of Marvel comics, D and D, but, and, and I looked at your paper, uh, for those of you who haven't caught on yet, John's paper is on, uh, football. It, it's on, uh, American football as lore, right. as folklore. And I really enjoyed uh, as much of it as I've been able to read. I've gotten about half uh, partially through it and skimmed over some of it. But in that paper, you know, he presents, 
football as a form of folklore. And that's a part of pop culture. And we see D&D as a part of pop culture. And we see Marvel Cinematic Universe as pop culture. And we see Star Wars as pop culture. And if we put a Venn diagram together, some of these people are going to overlap in their pop cultures. You know, I've said for a long time, you know, uh, there are two major religions in the South. And I will pick on Tennessee. There are two major religions in Tennessee. Uh, the first major religion is Tennessee football. And the second major religion is Jesus. I'm, I'm not saying denomination, Baptist, Methodist, Roman Catholic. It's Jesus. Those are the two major religions in Tennessee. Uh, I will gather together with you if we support the same team. And I will gather together with you if we love gun-toting Jesus the same way. I mean, that is, that is the religion in Tennessee for the most part. But these meta-narratives are changing. There aren't, there aren't these overarching meta-narratives. And I, I think that's causing a cultural shake. And I'm wondering what's going to happen down the road. So, yeah. So one of the, just real quick addendum on that. One of the problems with, not problems, problems is the wrong word, but one of the issues with American culture specifically is that we don't have a very long history to fall back on, right? Um, we don't have uh, a sort of uh, idealized version of our medieval selves like King Arthur or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Our idealized version of our past is genocide Indians. So Kind of a mixed bag, you know. Um, but, uh, <laughs> so, so, so disagreeing. Ow. Genociding engines and you know running away to be religious zealots. That's uh, that, right. You know, uh, right, right, right. Hey, hey, <laughs> hey, hey! I've got friends in America that love the idea that we ran away to be religious zealots. Thank you very much. We have a strong puritanical base around here still, my brother. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just saying, that. I'm just saying there's, you know, it's kind of a mixed bag in American history, right? So we don't yeah. have that kind of idea, right? So we look for our, and I don't want to get this wrong and, and kind of oversimplify things, but what used to happen, quote unquote, people would look inward to the communities they were already a part of, right? So I live in this specific area. That is part of my identity, right? New England is famous for this, right? Yeah. I have a New England identity, right? Because I don't have an American identity, right? That doesn't exist. New England is more important to me than that, right? Jersey identity, Texas identity, something like that, right? Or you'll have a sports identity or you'll have a, uh, you know, a church identity. You know, I go to this church. Oh, I go to First Methodist. Oh, you don't? Okay, you're not a real Methodist, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but what I, what part of my argument has been that pop culture has overridden all of that pop culture says you don't need to have an idealized mythology anymore, right? Because you know, if you're American, if you watch the Super Bowl, right. Mm. And we can go from there, right. And NFL films, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen any NFL films kind of, uh, highlight shows. They're very dramatic. They're very bombastic, oh, yeah. uh, classical yeah. music in the background, slow motion kind of, uh, uh, of players kind of, you know, almost like a nature documentary, right. Of saying like, Oh, look at this, you know, and you know, you're an American because you celebrate, you've seen this, this highlight, you know what this highlight means and you agree with the symbolism of this. You know what I mean? So it's, mm -hmm. 
part of my argument has been pop culture has overridden a lot of that need and a lot of that problem. So now we look back at something like the 50s. That's now our idealized past or World War II more specifically, is our idealized past. Things were better in the 40s when we were kicking the Nazis' ass, right? Yeah. Things were better in the 50s when, every, uh, when, when all those people came home and became suburban, right? The truth of it is completely on the other side of the spectrum where it's very complicated. There's a lot of bad stuff going on in the 40s and 50s, right? But that sort of idealized past has become the kind of root from which identity forms, right? So now we have a situation where instead of looking inward to the communities you're in as a sense of identity, you just turn on TV or you turn on, uh, I guess, Netflix now, whatever, right? So pop culture, and it's not just sports, it's not just nerd culture, it's Oprah, it's politics, it's, it's, it's uh, the news, right? It's, it's, Every, you know, it's cat videos, right? This is all part of pop culture, right? Pop culture is an amorphous blob, right? If you try to stand up to it, it's just going to suck you in, right? So there's no escaping pop culture. But part, again, part of my argument is that pop culture has its own power now. And that's the kind of scary thing, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't mean scary in not too negative terms, but scary in a way that you have to be conscious of it, you have to be cognizant of it. You know, this is one of the reasons why uh, I'm very proud to, to, to teach the humanities and to be the only guy sometimes that um, will, will be telling these college students to say, hey, you have to be able to read narratives. Because if you don't, if you're not capable of reading narratives, you're going to be lost. You're going to be taken advantage of. You're going to be manipulated by... Hallelujah. Preach. Yes. (laughs) Jesus. Thank you. It's pretty straightforward to me, but it's a matter of sometimes telling an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 20-year-old, you know, Look, open your eyes. Like, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying it's malicious. But this company is trying to get you to spend money. This company is trying to get you to hate this other company, right? It's a matter of recognizing the different narratives around you, right? It's a matter of being uh, cognizant and being able to use those narratives to kind of recognize the communities you're in, recognize the ways in which those communities interact, and, you know, try and be a better person, you know? <laughs> Woo! Preach! Preach! It's thinking, isn't it, basically? And I think, you know, working in the education um, field as well, I think the younger generation is a lot better at critical thinking now than even my generation, and definitely the generations that came before me. Sorry, Derek. Um, <laughs> but they are, because... They're used to having the internet. They're used to having all these conflicting opinions and having to pass out where things are coming from. So I think over time, things might get better in that regard because the new generations are equipped to deal with that. I I agree with you and I disagree with you. I agree that they are used to getting so many different opinions that they have to think more critically. Mm. But what John's saying about telling them they need to read a narrative, because we live in a culture where everything is five minute sound bites and you need to be able to look at a narrative arc. You need to be able to have a story with a beginning, a middle and an end so that you can journey through that story. Do you know what uh, the average um, attention span of a teenager is now? Not very long. I don't know. <laughs> Eight seconds. That sounds about right. Yeah. Three years ago, it was 12 seconds. 
Yeah. It's now eight seconds. Yeah, I can believe. Uh, yeah, but but I, I think it's important. And, and so, you know, because what John's saying just hits home to me here, Stephen, when he talks about the power of narratives, the power of <laughs> stories to be transformative, you and I agree on that. Uh, but, but it really hits me because he's talking to college students about that. Mm. I'm talking to 60 and 70 and 80 year old people, sometimes 50 year old people who have never heard that. Yeah, because it's been dogma and it's been doctrine. And that is why, you know, I am thankful for the seminary professors now and for the last 20 or 30 years have been saying, preach the narratives. Yeah. And don't go to the narrative trying to suss out a doctrine or a dogma. Go to a narrative to tell the story and to share the story in your way and in your own way, and then let the people go from there taking what they need to take from the story. And, and so my big argument, and, and I think John like this, is, is a good preacher, a good minister should be a good storyteller. And you don't have to come up with your own stories. You can take those stories of faith and those stories of religion and process them through you Yep. And they will be changed as they go through you. If we want to get metaphysical here, that's the Holy Spirit changing it and transforming you as the story goes through you. And then as the people take in the story, it transforms and changes them as they share it. And it's powerful to have these stories. Mm. And, and But the problem I see is that we have an older generation that has been blissfully unaware of the stories of their faith. And we have younger generations that don't know how to read a complete narrative. I mean, you know, I mean, I, working with our son on the main idea in a paragraph makes me so happy. I mean, I'm sitting down and we're going through there. I want you to find the main idea. And he's fussing and he's upset and he's angry. But once he comes to that main idea of the paragraph, I'm like, yes, he knows how to read. He knows how to comprehend. I'm sorry, I grew up in a day when comprehension skills was on the test, and you got evaluated for that. Could you comprehend? In the UK, you get that now. Yeah. The, the comprehension. In fact, yeah. I've been a science teacher. They give it now, but you didn't get that when you were growing up, did you? I don't know, actually. <laughs> but having been a science teacher, if they can't comprehend what the questions are saying, even if they know the answers they're not going to get the points because they have to answer what the question's asking, not what oh, wow. it seems to be asking. So, yeah. All right. Well, we've gone far afield, so I, I, I've done a lot of talking. Uh, Stephen, uh, you give us some final thoughts, and then I'm, we're going to let uh, John uh, send us on our way with some of his closing thoughts. Uh, uh, well, it's just been a fascinating conversation. Thank you, John, that one. Um, you know, folklore and pop law and seeing how pop culture has just, you know, come in and completely sidelined what folklore is and completely changed the whole field of it. Um, it must be absolutely fascinating for you working in it and seeing these changes as, as they happen in real time. You know, it's, it's, um, it's an amazing time to be in. Um, and yeah, lots of stuff to chew over and to, to have a good think on. Um, so yeah, I, I shall pass over to you, John, for your final thoughts. Uh, well, first of all, I just want to thank you guys for uh, having me on. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. 
I can't believe you actually read part of my dissertation. That's pretty crazy. Uh, <laughs> but a uh, um, uh, couple things. I just think, uh, uh, you know, a lot of what we're talking about and a lot of what folklorists internally kind of talk about is how, you know, it's all very cyclical, right? The more things change, the more they stay the same, right? And that's true in a sort of meta sense, even for us, where it's like, we're, t we're using methodologies that, that came up with, you know, in the 40s, right? And we've tried to get away from them, we've tried to improve upon them, and then we come back into a digital culture 21st century, where those methodologies are more relevant than ever. Right. And so sometimes it's just a matter of getting the basics and, and knowing exactly what you're trying to do. Right. I had a friend of mine tell me one time, uh, it was a really important time. And he's like, you know, here's my only advice. Whatever it is you're trying to do, know why it is you're doing it. Right. And it's not it's a little bit of a cumbersome phrase, but uh, uh, it, it was very powerful to me in the moment. And it remains with me where, you know, whatever you're trying to accomplish. Right. Whatever you're trying to do. Um, know why you're trying to do it, right? Whatever, you know, if I, if it could be as simple as I'm going to go buy this pair of pants, why, why are you buying that pair of pants? Is it because a commercial told you, is it because you like them? Is it because whatever the case may be, right? Or how do I, or I want to create a church community, right? Why, why are you doing, right? So it can, it works on all sorts of different levels, right? And I think um, just sort of recognizing the power pop, pop culture has and, the power narratives and traditions possess, right? These are very powerful cultural forces all around us, right? And um, I, uh, I don't want to, you know, I don't want this to sound disparaging, but a lot of people don't recognize that, you know, these powerful forces are around them, right? That's one of my favorite things when I'm speaking to freshmen or, or undergrads, just to watch them sort of open their eyes to be like, yeah, this very basic concept, what is the function of folklore? opens up an entirely new sort of breadth of understanding and a way of looking at the world where you might have come up with that on your own. I might have come up with it on my own, you know, whatever, but we didn't. So here it is. And now all of a sudden we get to look and, and see things in a whole new sort of light. Um, and uh, I think that just in terms of kind of finding community, the idea that folklore is old is wrong. Okay, that's kind of an important point. I should have mentioned earlier, right? Folklore is not old. Just because something is old doesn't mean it's folklore. Doesn't mean it's a tradition, right? Traditions can be new. Traditions can be old, right? Old time is not a factor in that respect, right? Time is a factor in terms of making sure a tradition continues, right? But there's no sort of like, oh, if it's been around for 20 years, it must be folklore, right? That's not a thing, right? So if you're talking about building communities, right, don't be daunted by the fact that, oh, this other community has been around longer or, you know, my community hasn't been around long enough or something like that. Um, the power of community and the power of traditions and the power of rituals and the power of narratives, right, that's the key point there. That's what will make a community that's what will break a community at the same time, right? Um, and so I think if you're doing that sort of thing, uh, again, it's just all about power. It's all about the power dynamics between individuals, between communities, uh, between stories, um, between fandoms, uh, between sports teams, right? Uh, you can take this however you want. But um, I think that's pretty much it for me. I, again, I really just want to thank you guys. This has been a lot of fun. Thank um, you. Thank you, John. Thank you, Stephen. I know it's late at night over there for you. And as always, the Lord bless you and keep you.
the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Take care and God bless.